Hello and welcome back to another episode of MC You Need to Know, a podcast dedicated to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything you need to know. I'm Trey. I'm Jude. How you doing, Trey? I am doing all right. It's been incredibly uh, rainy where I'm at, and so that has made work difficult. So it's been a little bit longer days trying to catch up. Other than that, there's not too much to complain about. Just a little more tired than usual. Man, there just must be a lot of storms or something, or it's coming this way. Um, <laughs> just because we've had rain, um, mm-hmm. off and on the past couple of days. It it has been all week, and it's the worst kind of rain where it's not enough to kind of like easily call you. Like, it's not enough to easily call it a rainout, right? But it's enough to be annoying and soaked for the entire day. Oh man, okay. So I remember eighth grade playing football. I'd be so disappointed when it rained like mid-afternoon because it would stop and I just knew it would be so humid at practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, those and are the worst. Get all muddy with all the cleats tearing up the yard. Uh-huh. And, uh, it wasn't bad if it was raining during practice, but if it stopped before you got to practice, that's when it sucked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what about you? How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. Um, we will get to, uh, let's see. I know this is delayed, but... Um, I'm finishing up summer school this week. Uh, tomorrow is the last day, Friday. Uh, we record Thursday, so I'm excited about that. And then officially, I'll have July off for summer. That'll be awesome. Although I think this episode will drop in July, so <laughs> as you're listening, I'm off. <laughs> it's I, I know we know, and I'm sure they've picked up on it by now, but it's so weird being off sync with what people are listening to and what we're recording. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I, I think that was, you know, we wanted to have that backlog mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, but once Falcon and Winter Soldier comes out, uh, Black Widow, that's going to, you know, supersede what we've been doing and we'll, we'll be much more um, current. Yeah, that'll be fun to be able to have a little bit more instantaneous conversation with the, the audience that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I got to make sure I speed up my editing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, me too, dude. I feel so behind. I don't think it's an understatement to and everybody feels that 2020 has been wild. Yeah, it is. Uh, Thanos has the time stone. <laughs> he has reality stone. He has all of them. <laughs> oh, man. Let's hope it doesn't take. F- Go for the head. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't take five years to get back on track. And now that I bummed us that's out. A, that's a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But if you don't know what we're doing, uh, we have been discussing Daredevil Season 1 from Netflix. Um, we're, we're currently on Episode 11, uh, The Path of the Righteous. So we open up immediately with Fisk rushing Vanessa into the hospital room from the previous episode. Uh, the doctors are gathering questions to try and figure out what's wrong with her, and Wesley does his best to try and relay details. Uh, when Fisk tries to follow Vanessa back into the actual hospital, he gets uh, told to stay up here. Okay, I'm going to read my notes out of order. Maybe the nurse should fight Fisk. <laughs> Um, I mean, she was a force, man. I, I don't think we've seen anybody stop Fisk like that. No. Do you know who I am? I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's great. Oh, man. Yeah. If uh, if Matt has another one of his Nobu encounters where he's on the brink of death, we'll we'll see if she'll go in instead. Yeah. So I'm I'm guessing, thinking about how the end of that last episode and this is going, Mm-hmm. And if we're tracking Fisk, like his own story arc, mm-hmm. this is his belly of the beast moment episode kind of in here, maybe. Mm-hmm. 
it's hard to do that. I, you know, cause as a villain, you expect him to lose in the end. Um, but, uh, to have that long form storytelling and to develop his character the way they've been doing and showing how vulnerable he is. Um, I would think that that's where we're at in his story right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad you brought that up um, because one of my first notes, and again, I mean, you and I both take notes sequentially, so I don't have everything listed out in this first note because I kind of come to this conclusion as the episode goes on. But something that I found interesting, and I want to see if it, if again, if I'm just kind of curtains are just blue or if you kind of see meaning here too. But I remember back in college, I I, I took one film class and the professor said something that stuck out to me that I think about every time I see this happen in movies or TV is that whenever you see like a TV that's playing something in the background, that's the visual equivalent of quoting somebody in a novel or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I always mm-hmm. try and like see if you can derive meaning from what's being quote unquote quoted. Um and in this scene in particular, we have this cartoon that this child is watching before Fisk rushes in where it's two, I think it's a giant rooster and a chicken fighting, and the smaller rooster gets knocked out and has like a bucket over its head. And then by the end of the scene, you see that that smaller chicken is having his wing raised up like he's the victor over the bigger chicken. Um, oh, I'll take that a step further. Like in my notes, I said, love the cartoon, big beast, beating little blind guy. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's, that's how I took the smaller one. Like he was blind. Um, and then when you come back, I thought it was interesting cause it was right after it was over fish shoulder when he was, mm-hmm. when he was holding up the winner, it was the little guy, um, right after that interaction with the nurse. Yeah. Um, so, th- so that was part of the, to me, I took that as kind of that belly of the beast signaling that turn where it seemed like Fisk had all that control, you know media police on the payroll all of that kind of stuff and now we're starting to see that turn Mm -hmm. that's that's how i took it and that's what i kind of like led me into this because for so long we've watched this inverse relationship between matt and fisk where matt is falling and fisk is rising and like you said this is the belly of the beast we're seeing that tide turn and i like that you read the the bucket as like the blindness because i didn't pick up on that but that's really good um for me, like, I guess I took the bucket as armor, which we don't know at the beginning, but this is the episode where Matt finally starts to get serious about creating his suit of armor. Right. So, I don't know. I just thought that was cool to kind of uh, track throughout the remainder of the episode. Yeah. I, I feel like that, I don't know uh, any meaning I derive out of that as much as it's like a little nod to the way the, the series is going, you know? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, again, you're not watching this well, I mean, I don't know if you're watching Infinity War and expecting how Infinity War end, but like you're not expecting Daredevil to lose. So right. so I, I feel like it was like a nice little Easter egg nod to people watching, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and it makes total sense because I think eventually I come to the conclusion it's almost similar in the way in episode six where Matt and Vladimir, where we, we feel like we have that breakthrough with Vladimir where he's actually going to give information. And you and I both discussed intellectually, we knew it'd be too early for that, but emotionally, we still felt like it was possible. And like you said, intellectually, we know Daredevil is going to win, but emotionally, he's been like on the ropes for so long. And so I I think even if you don't notice it, like I think subconsciously, this is the way the creators are signaling to us that things are on the rise for Matt. I think so. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't... 
Like, I'd love to add to that, but I, you hit the nail on the head. Like, this is mm-hmm. kind of that subconscious in the background. Even the music, you know, mm-hmm. that goes with the cartoon all pushes us in that direction. Mm-hmm. The only other note that I have is... I don't know if Leland is responsible for poisoning the drinks, but his behavior in this scene totally feels like when a kid is trying to cover up for something you know they did wrong. Yeah, should should I shouldn't somebody be checking me out? Like, I, and all I wrote was Leland being Leland. Like, you, you know, he's he's very petulant. Yeah, yeah. I have another thought on Leland, but I'm going to save it to another scene. Um, okay, but but yeah, like like he he just yeah like I, um. I mean, clearly, like, Vanessa's critical, you know, and he's all like, well, I held a drink. <laughs> you know, God. there's, like, foam God. coming from the mouth on Vanessa. I held a drink. <laughs> Shouldn't someone be checking me out? <laughs> oh, man. So after the title sequence, we do return back to Matt's apartment where Karen is trying to get Matt to answer the door. After beating on the door for a while, Matt eventually lets her in and she begins to question the very nature of Matt's accident and the confrontation between Matt and Foggy. You know what? I'm trying to remember because I have it as Matt really didn't want to answer the door. And then something alerted to him and, and made him do it. And I, I guess maybe he realized it was Karen. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell. There was an element of... Not sloppiness or carelessness, but it was like while he went with the I got hit by a car story, Mm -hmm. it wasn't very convincing. No. And it could be because and kind of circling back to your point about like something made him open the door and, you know, whether or not it's realizing it's Karen. If we're try and take a peek into where he's at emotionally Part of, I mean, because obviously he is almost mortally wounded. He's dealing with that. But I think a lot of his being down in the dumps has to do with coming off the confrontation with Foggy. And I think, yeah. I think emotionally there's something, there's a part of him that's like, what got me here was not being honest with my friends. I think realizing it was Karen at the door forced him to get up. And then as far as the sloppiness with the car, even if he's not ready to reveal the entire story. I think there's a part of him that's relenting and understanding he needs to be more honest about what was going on. He just doesn't know how to do it. Do you think he wants to get caught right here? That's what I think. Karen to know. I think that's what it is. It's like, it's less about caring about the secret and more just like if she figures it out kind of thing, which I mean, that that's me making a huge reach, but it's me trying to fit the pieces. But the thing is like, I think the way the scene plays out you can you can tell Karen's on to something. Mm-hmm. You know, was it Fisk? You know, did who did this to you? Was it Fisk? Um, kind kind of stuff. Um, you know, it it was interesting to me that Matt threw that little jab back when she tried to comfort him. It's like, hey, I was remember the last time I was here and you comforted me, and he's like, yeah, and you lied to me. Yeah. Um, and there was where I thought he was about to kind of slip up. Yeah. You know, because then he had to follow that up. You know, with oh, you had these things and didn't tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, but without that, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think I kind of feel like that was meant to be almost a slip up right there. Yeah. Which, I mean, we've, we've seen him, you know, th- there's precedent. He almost did that in the flashback scenes with Foggy. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's very plausible that he would do it here. And here, Karen tells uh, about the visit that her and Ben took to go see Fix mom. And Matt said, Hey, you need to be more careful. But what I found interesting is like, he... I kind of tracked this through. Matt basically pointed out how that information wasn't as good as, you know, Karen thought it was. Right. 
I want to say this because this is a this is a mistake on my part. I completely missed the fact that Fisk's mother was allegedly dead, which I think if I would have had that in mind, that would have helped amplify the importance of Karen finding her last episode. So I right. I didn't keep that in in mind. So I think that's another reason why I kind of felt a little underwhelming. Um, but even still, like you said, people are pushing back against this notion that it's a thing. Um, and I, I kind of like that because, again, like you said, we know Daredevil is going to win even outside of having already seen this, even though I've forgotten. This continuous thread of like pushing back on it being important, I'm assuming is going to amplify whatever the solution turns out to be. I don't remember them ever mentioning Fisk's mom being dead before. <sighs> I want to. S- I feel like that was the first we heard it. If that's the case, then that then I feel vindicated <laughs> from last week's episode. You know, <laughs> I could have missed it, but I feel like that's the first I we wanna, heard. It. Like it's weird. Like I want to say that I somehow knew that, but it was a casual, like a throwaway line. But yeah, I, I, I the only thing I can think of is during the dating scenes with Vanessa where it got brought up. But you may be right. Maybe it wasn't plainly stated that. Yeah, because even in there, he talked about how he went away to live with family and then came back. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember him mentioning his mom passing. Well, then that's just bad writing. Well, well, and up until this point, um, yeah, up until this point, you know, nobody knew about his past anyway. Mm -hmm. So I really think that was the first time it was mentioned. Okay. I I don't like this scene. (laughs) Now that I think about it, that's, that feels unfair to kind of just drop. Yeah. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to research that out and double check, yep. but I feel like that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other note that I have is is maybe this is representative of my own cold heart, but I honestly don't know what the purpose of Karen ringing the balloon was for, but I wouldn't trade a thing just to have that scene where Matt is sitting there holding the balloon at the end of the scene. I don't know what it yeah, was. Yeah, I liked it. It was so, like, it's obviously sad, but I couldn't help but laugh just watching it. Yeah, no, no, no. I liked it. It was, it was a good, it was a good touch. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, is, you know that Matt, with his abilities, mm-hmm. knew it was a balloon. Probably even knew a monkey was on it. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So. <laughs> so after Karen and Matt's meeting, we do find ourselves waking up with Foggy, who is ignoring Karen's call. And as he continues to come to, we learn that he has spent the night with Marcy. I had mixed feelings about this scene. Uh-huh. And how I see Foggy and how I think of him as a character. So, okay, so he woke up and he's hungover, mm-hmm. right? So he went out drinking and it had to be after he left Matt's. Yeah. So there's an element of like, was that already going on between him and Marcy? Did he just randomly show up and he's kind of using her? Mm-hmm. I mean, the way the scene plays out, she clearly doesn't mind being used, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. It, it just seemed... It just seemed weird. It's 100% weird. Um, and, I, you know, in my notes, I put, neither one of us mentioned the line a few episodes ago where Foggy throws away a line of him back-channeling with Marcy to get information. Right. Um, and it's, one, I'm surprised we didn't bring it up because I think that at the time, I know the Union Allied case has kind of fallen through, but at the time, I think that would have been a conflict of interest. And then, two... We've both stated how we're not fans of the way they're handling the foggy Karen relationship. Right. But it, this is like another weird out of left field thing where we we on text see 
this thing happening between Karen and Foggy, and then out of text, he's back with Marcy. And so it's just like this disjointed, weird roadmap that it, it doesn't make any sense. Well, even that line, the back-channeling line, I, I, I believe you're right on the conflict of interest, mm-hmm. right? Because they're opposite sides of a case. Um, but that line really could be played in one or two ways, depending on how they deliver it. Well, because right. right after like, he like you says could literally it, be doing back channeling with with Marcy that has no connotations in windows at all. Right. But you could also do it in the way they did do it with delivering the line where it goes that way, you know. Um, so, yeah, especially because the way he delivers it is kind of like, uh, you know, under his breath, looking to the side ashamed. And then they have Karen go like, oh, gross. So it's like, right. That's the clearly how they wanted us to read it. It's just, I don't know. Uh, it's weird that the, they, it's almost like they had no plans and they dropped the foggy Karen line. Yeah, it, yeah. And so it it just, I mean, I, I get you're trying to show how distraught, I guess he is, mm-hmm. about what happened, you know, mm-hmm. um, between him and Matt finding out that he's the man in the mask um, and all of that, you know, took the sign threw it in the trash or, you know, and, and all that. Um, I don't know. It just seemed like a weird choice to go that way. Yeah. Especially after how much they've sown seeds of Foggy calling out Matt for being, uh, you know, like a, a womanizer. Right, right. And and they really started to make, uh, trying to show Foggy as this good moral person. Yeah. Y- you know, um, and again, I, it's weird to say that because, like, you don't know, did he end up there because he's been seeing her again? And then it makes it feel a little less like, oh, what are you doing? But the way it's just done, it feels like you're using that person. And so, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All I can say is we've... We've been proven wrong before where it, it plays importance later, like with, you know, the Blake thing. We both thought it was weird that they kept him alive and then it right. came into play. So maybe right. we've got, what, two more episodes to go? We'll see how it plays out. Yeah. Well, but even if you wanted to go that direction, mm-hmm. right, having him wake up the next morning hungover versus, like, them having... I don't know, like them meeting in a scene together some way. Like, in other words, does that make sense? Like having those characters cross paths again because he goes and having it be revealed in that way versus another way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's I don't know. It's just a weird choice. You could you could chrono chrono it. What am I trying to say? Chronicle it. That's not it. Mm-hmm. Is that the no. right phrase? Chronicle it. Maybe. Is what you're trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you could show step by step how he got there, and it would be less jarring than what they did. Right. There's a word okay, for yeah. that. I don't think Chronicle's right. the right one, but right. you get the idea. <laughs> right. No. 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 I, I get. I get what you're saying. Oh man. Yeah. So after the scene where we discover that Foggy has been with Marcy, uh, we return back to Fisk, who is waiting nervously in the hospital waiting room, and his entire guard team fills the room. Uh, Leland begins to express his concerns to Wesley about Fisk being distracted and that he needs to get his head back into the game. So was Leland pushing Wesley towards Nobu? 
Like, like, did he know it was Gal, and was he covering by pushing him in Nobu's direction? It certainly felt that way. It it doesn't feel genuine. Right, right. And it's it, it's again, it's the it's the same um, behavior of of like a kid who you know has done wrong, and they're overcompensating for the fact, and it just doesn't come across as genuine. Yeah. Now, I will say I side with Leland a little bit here where his his focus is on business. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's the money person mm-hmm. for this organization, not just Fisk, but multiple organizations. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is going to be his focus. That like that's like in an organization, that is someone's job to to make sure the organization keeps running. Um and so I was kind of in a weird way sided with Leland of like, hey, you know, business is still going. Yeah. And again, I've been trying to track whether or not Leland had a part in this or or not. And I think it's very telling, like you said, that his main concern here is that Fisk is predisposed and it's not that he's concerned about Vanessa's well-being. And if we follow this through and he is very concerned about keeping business going and he agrees that Vanessa's been a distraction, then, you know, we see how little care he has. So I don't think it would be a stretch to see him wanting to take her out. Yeah, I got a nice chuckle, though. Mm-hmm. out of um, Wesley's line where he said, it's been an honor doing business with you <laughs> when, when Wesley's, when, when Leland's all, and what if it was gal? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm going to read my notes straight. Wesley has some great lines in this scene, but his delivery of it's been an honor doing business with you might be contended for best of the season. <laughs> <laughs> that line was incredible. Because, and especially because you know how much Wesley has just had it with Leland. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Just, like, you could tell he took joy in saying that. Yeah, because it was the scene before, or the episode before, two episodes before, uh, where they're at Fisk Apartment, you know, and, and you could tell that they really didn't get along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, I don't like you, but you don't see me lighting a match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah. After that interaction, we cut back to Matt's apartment. Uh, Claire is there and um, stitching or re-stitching Matt uh, back together. At this point, she re or she re-insists because I think she mentioned it once before about him getting some body armor. Matt, it seems like tries to rekindle uh, some old flame by offering a drink, um, and then they discuss what the nature of their relationship is going to be moving forward. Mm-hmm. So. This is a bit of a long-winded note, but just follow through with me. The MCU has done a great job of grounding the fantastical in reality. Mm -hmm. For example, like, you know Thor isn't a literal god. Um, You know, uh, Vulture isn't a bird person. He's a person that uses technology to create that persona. Right. Uh, So it grounds these characters more than their comic book counterparts. And I think the thing that I love about Matt and Claire's dynamic a lot is that it feels like they're they are the embodiment of that push and pull between fantastical and realistic mm-hmm. uh, because you know here she is you know using her medical knowledge to heal matt and he's discussing his like you know i use meditation to help me heal up faster and some of his superpowers that allows him to regain that health right and so it's 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 that cool push and pull that i really like about them a lot i'm glad that you pulled that part out of the scene because i think you mentioned in your favorite episode on stick um, that... <laughs> you baited me because I literally got my head in the mind frame of condemn for a second and thought about their scenes there. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> I, I think it was that episode where you mentioned they introduced a su- supernatural element. Mm-hmm. I like in that because he says meditate, you'll heal faster, um, black sky and all that. And so I, I think they did a good job of laying in that supernatural element early on for that line. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it doesn't seem out of the place or foreign, so to speak. And, you know, it's funny this and this is a tangent, but you just sparked a memory in me. Um, it's it's almost kind of similar to the way with the Avengers, the first movie. I remember being so not off put, but I thought it was weird how we were getting the scene of. I'm going to get this wrong. Was it the seer? It was the person who was conveying knowledge to Thanos. I think they had like a, um, the scene with Loki and that henchman mm-hmm. and Thanos was in the background. And I remember right. thinking like, wow, this feels this feels like a stretch. Like, because we haven't seen it, the the universe getting this far out there. Yeah. And you almost have to have that kind of, not rude awakening, but similar to a rude awakening to get comfortable where we get to end game and we're seeing Peter Parker swinging off Mjolnir and then being caught on a Pegasus and like all those fantastical stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, well, I, I, I mean, and they, I mean, you got to go back to Dr. Strange, you know, mm-hmm. um, where they, where they start easing us into that stuff too. Mm-hmm. Unless I'm thinking of the wrong scene. Well, or what are you referencing? The, the one you were, the one you were describing. Oh, at the yeah, the final endgame fight. Right, no, 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 with Loki and... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, like um, you said, they're easing you into it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I think I ruined your point. It was a I good think, one, though. I don't think you did. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, because, okay. I mean, like, we can follow that with Doctor Strange. Like, you know, potential spoilers if you don't want to know the plans of future movies, but giving them a second to skip ahead... But the second Doctor Strange is called Multiverse of Madness, in the Multiverse of Madness. And if we never would have taken the time to kind of ease ourselves right. into the multiverse in the first one, I don't think we would have been prepared. So I, 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 that's how I took your Doctor Strange point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. So we're, <laughs> we're on the same page with that. Okay. Yeah. You know, and in that, the main thing that I got out of this scene is that, that mm-hmm. missed opportunity between them, you know, and, and, and so, and I like that term, the push and pull, because it's, you can tell they still at this point mm-hmm. wanted something to happen. Um, and she had that, Claire had that line that was, um, for better or worse, uh, in terms of Matt being Daredevil. And, and my note, when I added, I was like, he's married to the yeah. city for better or worse. Right. Like, like it, it is a level of commitment that I think even Foggy pointed out, like, no, to be able to do this, you don't just do this, decide randomly mm-hmm. one day, you've still been training. Like he's married to this idea. Um, and, and it just wouldn't be conducive for that relationship to work. And it's such a great use of, I don't know, I guess trope of like our hero wanting to get to a point where they don't have to do it anymore. But Claire points out it's, there's never going to be a point where he stops being Daredevil. So you framing it as he's married to this right. ideology is a great way to, to frame it. Now, the one last thing I had on this scene uh-huh. for me. Um, and I got a little distracted uh-huh. by this. The apartment looked different. Huh. Yeah. The, the stairs weren't there. That's interesting. I didn't pick up on that. And like the doors that would be uh-huh. locked by the mm-hmm. end of the stairs weren't in the right place. Hmm. I'll have to pay attention to that and, and, and rewatch that. And so I'm, I'm wondering if they just went back and had to admit, do a makeup shoot for that mm-hmm. scene at some point. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's. I'll have to point it out to you, you know, but it's just like like the floor plan of that apartment. It was like they was in a different place. I mean, it always comes to those things where like, you know, they use different sets for the quote unquote same location to get different angles or I guess what's available to them. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I, normally I like picking up on that stuff because, again, another tangent. One of my favorite ones is, again, I know you've been watching Community. In that pilot episode, there's a scene where Jeff like climbs the stairs. And that's the last time you ever mm-hmm. see anybody climb a stairs to get to the study room because it's on ground floor in the rest of the series. Wait, he climbs yeah, stairs? Yeah, when he walks back in with the test answers. Oh, uh, okay. I'm going to have to go right? check that It's again. fun to pick up those little things. Yeah. <laughs> Look, that's a tangent, but I you, I think by now everybody can figure out I'm trying to get a community spinoff podcast going. <laughs> 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 <sighs> uh, one of the things, my only other note for this scene is that I can tell that Foggy and Matt are, are, are close friends because we pointed out like that one time like where Matt, where Foggy and Karen were on their date and Foggy makes the conversation about Matt. Uh-huh. Why the heck did Matt offer up that he offered up another woman a drink in his apartment? Like there was no reason to bring that I, up. I know that was, yeah. <laughs> They're both yeah. great at putting their foot in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because that was a huge mistake and on it, his part um, in terms mm-hmm. of dating, you know. I don't Maybe it's to, to show their innocent, like, not thinking stuff out because you can immediately see him on his face like, oh, why did I say that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I think in the writing they acknowledged it because she even made uh, – Claire made some comment about mm-hmm. getting around. So, yeah. So, so at least even in the thing they acknowledged yeah. it. So after Matt and Claire reconvene, we do join back with Karen and Ben who are at the docks. Ben is very clearly upset with Karen and explains to her how bad it was that she used him for the trip to the nursing home. Uh, Karen insists that if they don't do anything, Wilson Fisk is going to win. Um, I can... Okay. <laughs> you know, no, uh, I was laughing. Okay, so there was a little bit of... Uh, listener interaction and i thought that was great um and it was about my mm-hmm. comments putting yeah. lol <laughs> um and and my comment here was like he's still mad and then quotes like you give a damn hey that's not fair right that's what their karen and ben's interaction was and then my notes in all caps it's a hundred percent fair <laughs> <laughs> Like, like, no, it's a hundred percent fair. What's wrong with you? By the way, regarding the listener feedback, I want to say thank you to Sabrina over on YouTube for giving us a, a feedback on your note taking. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, yeah, like, I mean, playing off what you said, I'm so glad that we're seeing some pushback from Ben this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were both clearly upset with the way Karen manipulated Ben last episode, and it. It would have felt like they just hand waved it away because they got what they wanted by finding uh, Vistain. But it shows like Ben is an actual character to see that he's upset. Like it's not like they just got what they wanted and dropped that plot line. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, what did he say? He said something along the lines of uh, reiterating how, yes, he realizes it was important, but. You know, it's not as, you know, his wife's more important. Um, I did find it interesting. This is the second time this episode someone has told Karen her information is not as good as she thinks it is. Um, mm-hmm. And now, God, now I want to rethink because, like, I think she even mentioned, like, Fist's mom's supposed to be dead. 
again somewhere in here. But and and I guess the reason why I didn't note that down because what Ben was saying I thought was is really what stood out to me, where he was kind of spinning like this is how Fisk would would spin it, you know, and just showing is like not only is it like the question of reliability, right? How you got mm-hmm. the information, who told you, but in dealing with Fisk and his owning media outlets, you know, or having them in his pocket, so to speak, you know, he's going to be able to spin this any way he wants. Right. I, I like that you mentioned this, the tracking of Karen's information being, you know, kind of pushed back on and put down, which is hard because obviously Karen is a very passionate person and we've been seeing her try to make a change so that it sucks to see this last cling of hope that she has. But I like that it's creating this sense of desperation and like hopelessness and trying to find something that will bring down Fisk because eventually we know the good guys win. And if they're cornering us in this situation where it feels like it's impossible to happen, it's going to make that catharsis feel better. Right. Well, and I think it also helps uh, kind of what we are saying about this probably being that belly of the beast episode or area of the, the art mm-hmm. for Fisk. Because also in doing that, Ben's pointing out that, yeah, like you get to the top by making a bunch of mm-hmm. enemies, you know. And, and so it's, it's, it's like that. It's like a moment now to, to in that hope, right, that to continue to tear down our mm-hmm. antagonist. Which I have more to touch on, but let me go ahead and, and set up this next scene and then I'll jump into that point because they tie into each other really well, especially the way that it transitions from this scene to the next. But. Oh yeah. Do, yeah. Well, I guess I should ask. Do you have any other notes in this scene? No, no. In, in fact, I I was almost about to start lending into the next. My scene bad. Do we want to redo this? <laughs> okay. No, go ahead. All right. Go ahead. So this is staying in. By the way, you guys get to see a peek behind the curtain. Well, here. No, yeah. Go ahead. No, like I I stopped because I I just um I. I don't know why. Like, I, I was naturally going and I hesitated, but whatever. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's keep roll. going. So, in the next scene, Wesley joins Fisk in the waiting room, uh, trying to console him. Wesley relays Leland's suspicion that Nomu did it, but Fisk shares details about why he think it might be Gal. Uh, eventually, as they're having their conversation back and forth, a doctor does enter in and tells Fisk that Vanessa's going to make it. So, again, like I was saying, playing off what you were saying about the you don't get to be the man at the top without making a few enemies, I like that... I like this contrast of having been in Karen in the previous scene, you know, putting Fisk in this on a pedestal image of like, you know, he's impossible to take down. And in the very next scene, we see him, like you said, at his lowest. He's clearly upset and worried about Vanessa. And there we've mentioned before, but there are far more scenes of Fisk vulnerable than there are of him in power. And it reminds me of something I felt whenever I played the Batman Arkham games. Did you ever play those? No, unfortunately. I have friends who, if and when they listen to this episode, they're going to be shaking their head because they've been trying to get me to do this for years. They're good. You should play them. Right. Okay. I kind of didn't want that on the record, but oh, I'm it's sorry. out there now. <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, no. anyway. Put, so put the there. point I'm trying to make is <laughs> one of the things that I always found fascinating when I played those games is that in almost every depiction of Batman we've seen, he is this imposing unstoppable shadow come to life like he's moving in and out of the shadows and taking people down and that's what we've grown to mm-hmm. know batman as but when you play him as in the game and you're actually coming across enemies and then you know having to take cover you see batman running away 
And that's something you never see. And it's like that vulnerable side. And that's what I'm feeling whenever I see them transitioning to Fisk just sitting there beaten down. Yeah. Well, and on that line about this vulnerability that we've seen of Fisk, Wesley and Fisk have a nice little moment there. Yeah. You know, and and a question I had for you, do you think this is the most Wesley has ever heard verbally from Fisk in in that kind of way, like that, that, that deep care of each other? It doesn't, I don't know. I mean, it's definitely the most we've seen on screen. Yeah. Well, because it was like he went to say something and he didn't, and Wesley just had like this nod, like knowing nod, like you don't have to say anything, I already know. You know, and, and so that just, the way that kind of played out, it almost made me wonder, not almost, it made me wonder, wow, is this the first time Fisk has shown Wesley the kind of affection Wesley shows for Fisk? Hmm. Definitely in the text, but I like if I'm trying to think through like a realistic nature of, of of this type of relationship, I don't think you could get to the the adoration that Wesley has for Fisk without there being examples of that prior. Okay, does that make sense? That makes sense, especially because like we've seen well, we talked about it whenever they were having their meeting in the car. You know, Wesley had his glasses off, which, again, you can push back whether or not that's curtains are blue, but it shows a level of comfort that Wesley had. Like, it was more than just business for them. This was these were friends. And we've seen Fisk, I think, multiple times throughout this episode, very genuinely just say, thank you, Wesley. And I think Wesley knows that he's a person that has a hard time expressing emotion. So seeing him get choked up here, like he knows all he needs to know. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the the one last thing from here, I think we see that Fisk no longer trusts uh, Leland. Yes. Well, because, you know, he was he was arranging for Vanessa to leave the country, mm-hmm. you know, set it up, uh, is what he said. And when Wesley's like, well, I'll get Leland to handle it. He's like, no, 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 no do it personally. Fisk trying to have as few people possible uh, have that information or where Vanessa is. Yeah. And the thing I liked about this is that it it pairs really well with that piece that Ben was writing, which ultimately never came out. But, you know, Ben had a line in there that said um, something about how there's an upper class of people that give more than they deserve and and they get happy endings. And, the, you know, Fisk and Wesley are having this conversation where Fisk wants to send Vanessa away. And Wesley says, I don't think she'll like that. And. Fisk says something to the line of like, uh, we'd always, we don't always get what we want or deserve. Right. And Wesley immediately pushes back and he says, but some of us deserve to. Right. And the thing I like about this is that, you know, we see Wesley trying to assuage Fisk's fears, but we also kind of get a glimpse into Wesley's psyche and his decision making. Like we see, you know, if he is this person in the opposite of Ben, who believes that some people deserve to get this kind of stuff, it makes sense how he's gotten to this point where he is Fisk's right-hand man. Yeah. Okay. So given what we've seen of Wesley so far in this episode, um, and Wesley says, I suspect everyone. Yeah. Now do we take that to mean he sent Leland to speak to Gal hoping to find out, mm. like, like it reveals that it's Gal and Leland dies? That is, I didn't think of that, but that, I mean, that fits. I mean, if he does suspect everyone, we've seen Fisk definitely has a penchant for putting people together in hopes that they take each other out. And it wouldn't be yeah. a stretch to see that Wesley would do the same. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, you know, I didn't think that, but you know, you asking it, I, my answer is yes. I think so. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real good catch. Yeah. Well, you know, when they don't have, you know, another character spell it out for us, you know, it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't take shots at the other episodes, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> So after Fisk learns that Vanessa is going to be okay, we join Matt, who has returned to the church with Father Latham. Uh, Father Latham questions whether or not that Matt was able to kill the man that they spoke of, and Matt offers that he wasn't able to. I think here we get we get the answer to what we already suspected. Father Latham knows Matt's daredevil, and they have you know that this their their conversation, and Matt takes it in the direction of God's purpose. What is this purpose? Why do I have these feelings of of wanting to let the devil out? And Latham's, um, I thought it was kind of clever the way the writers took Latham's um, response. Because to me, this is where Daredevil was born or is born, right? Because because mm-hmm. he he pushes him in the direction of like becoming a symbol. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's one of the things I really liked about this scene. That pairs well with what my biggest takeaway from the scene was, is that, you know, Matt mentions that he's not afraid of dying, to which Father Latham mentions that it's not living, that it's living that scares most people. And I like that this this glimpse that we get into Matt's mind, because we see this struggle on a daily basis where he has this internal rage between angels and devils inside him. And it kind of gives us an explanation where the easiest answer is for Matt to go out there and risk his life because if he dies, then it's an end to that struggle. And we've seen that because repeatedly throughout the season, you know, he's not really had a concrete plan on what he's doing. He's just going out there right. and putting himself in danger. Right. And I like that Father Latham states it's not well, – doesn't plainly state it, but he, he gives that impression that it's not just that he can go out there and, and take punishment and dole out justice – but he's someone that can get close to the fire without being corruptible. And he says it in that to summon the better angels of his nature line. Um, it, it feels like it gives a deeper purpose to the character. And I think that's something he's been searching for all season long. Right. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think he, I think he gets the answer to what he's searching for uh, of mm-hmm. his deeper purpose. I don't know. I think one of the things that made me uneasy about this scene um, mm-hmm. And now, and now, part of it is because of me and who I am and what I do for a living, right? Um, Fight keep, crime. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> man, all kinds of secrets are coming out now. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I just i I get the I liked the moment, but I, I but this time around I felt conflicted because because as I'm following it through and tracking it. In, in the way I've been tracking the the season this time through, I'm like, is that really, I mean, essentially Father Latham created Daredevil and it was like, is that really the best advice Latham should have given, you know? Um, and, and so I get that in that world and in the context of the show, it is, you know, but there's an element of, to me as well that I'm just like, you're kind of encouraging him to continue doing what he's doing, mm-hmm. which is being a vigilante and breaking the law and, and whatnot. Um, and I think part of that is just watching this now versus in 2015 mm-hmm. um, with, and we've mentioned this in other 
in other episodes, tracking the kill code, human shield, Natasha did it. Um, this genre becoming more highly aware now mm-hmm. of, of things like collateral damage and stuff like that. And so I think it's with that lens that I kind of had pause at, at how the daredevil was character was born in this series. I do want to point out cause like in we, I didn't say it, but I, I, you said it. And then in my note, I put the, you know, he can become a symbol now. It, we've been doing it all season, but it's, it's funny how many par- comparisons we can draw to the Nolan Batman <laughs> becoming more than the, just a man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And become a symbol. Yeah. yeah. Something. Yeah. What did you say? Elemental. So, yeah. So after his conversation with father Latham, we do return back to Matt's apartment where he begins to meditate while he's in a trance, he does have flashbacks to his fight with Nobu and relives the pain of the fight with Nobu and Fisk. Eventually, the memory of the fight jolts him back to reality and he dons his black mask. Uh, we immediately cut to Turk running away frantically where Matt eventually gets him and interrogates him about where he can get armor like Fisk. Yeah, I liked the the flashbacks disrupting the meditation. Um, it, it just, it, I don't know. I just took it as like this hints of PTSD, like like it has that, you know. I mean, you got to imagine everything Matt's seen and done. Mm-hmm. Like it has to take this toll, right? Um, and if and if meditation is supposed to be, you know, what he does to get himself right, physically, you know, and all, emotionally and all that, um, I, I like that he can't right. just jump right into it and everything's okay. Yeah, I mean it, and it almost like. If if we we go out on this limb about his meditation being ways to heal him, if seeing this PTSD mm-hmm. stop that process, it just kind of gives us a, a deeper look of like he needs to confront those issues first before he can fully move on, kind of thing. My biggest takeaway from the scene was that, given everything that's going on right now with with police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement, um, this scene was incredibly hard to watch. Um, especially, especially because of of a specific line Uh after Matt corners Turk and he starts beating on him, Turk says, what are you beating up on me for? I didn't do nothing. That phrase, I didn't do nothing has been used as a dog whistle Mm -hmm. to stereotype victims of police brutality and undercut the mistreatment uh, that they've been dealing with. Mm -hmm. Granted, I know this show was in 2015 and we're here in 2020 and the way that we're approaching this stuff is a lot different, but I think it speaks volumes about the way the, the police brutality against black Americans and, and, and other uh, minorities was so ingrained that it didn't stick out to me then, but it definitely sticks out to me now. And it just made it really uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. Well, and I, um, let me, let me not to get away from this point. So let me say this and, and, and weave back to it. I think there's a couple of things, other things like the episode with we brought up with Claire and just the whole purpose for her in that episode was giving Matt someone to save, you know, and and the problems with that. Um, And I think there's a number of things that uh, that one sticks out that it's just kind of like test of time and just what happens in five years. Right. Mm -hmm. That that changes how we how we view things. Mm -hmm. Um and I think we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, how we've seen Turk as an arms dealer. We've seen Turk set up the Russians. We've seen Turk in the opening scene with like the human trafficking. So we, we clearly know who Turk is. Mm-hmm. 
But at the same time, there's a certain level of expectations you have of your heroes, right? Like, or your your protagonist, where it's like, it just felt just like, I don't know, like, hey, I'm just going to beat whoever I need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've already seen him, Matt, do that before, let the devil out and beat whoever I need to. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, like seeing it now through that lens, I'm trying to imagine, would it have been any different if he, if they as a show creator, showed him stopping a crime well, and, and then I, I, asking for information as opposed to just like, like, you know what I mean? And, and as opposed to just finding him randomly on the street. And I don't know if even that would, would be that much different or in terms of difficult to watch. Right. And I, cause I, I wrote this, I wrote that down. You know, we've seen other situations where Matt has beat up on people before, but the difference here is we're seeing Matt do this on someone who wasn't actively hurting another person. So again, we, like you said, we can get into these weird gray areas of knowing that Turk is an arms dealer, but there's less of a direct mm-hmm. reasoning for Matt's interference than, say, with the man who was intimidating the juror or the man who kidnapped the little kid. And so it's, it's, right. it feels uncomfortable that, that in those other scenes, they took the time to give us those reasonings, but here it's just straight up, he's going to beat up on whoever he wants. And it's just, again, going through the lens of what's going on with police brutality. Um, again, you know, Matt's not a cop, but it's almost kind of that that fantasy of like dealing out justice on your own terms, not being accountable to anyone kind of thing. Um, yeah. Well, and I mean, to take that a step further, it's not just that. It's look at the character Turk. Who did they cast? Mm-hmm. Right. So it, I mean, it, it is a stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does that tell us mm-hmm. that that is a stereotype type of character? You know what I mean? The the criminal element and all of that. And and, and I think this is where um, there's a heightened awareness now, you know, and, and I say now, it's not like that heightened awareness hasn't been around for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, I think we're seeing a reaction is a heightened awareness and a, and a wider spread audience, actually, if, if that makes sense. It's telling how, like I said, it's telling how ingrained it was then. And now that we've kind of been opened up to that conversation more, it's it, it sticks out. Yes. I do want to say this, though, stepping back within the context of the show, you know, whatever is happening there. I, I do find it interesting that whenever it gets to the point that Matt was like, okay, well, you're no use of me. I'm going to throw you off the side of the, the roof. They took the time to show us a shot of the dumpster. Uh-huh. We've seen that Matt clearly has no qualms about dropping people off a roof before. Right. So my question is, do you think it was all for show? Or do you think Matt was serious about throwing him over? You know what? I was wondering the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, part of me wants to say his character has developed, right? Mm-hmm. And we've tracked that. So we have to. I you almost have to believe it was for show, mm-hmm. right? But you know, basically, the question is: if Turk didn't give up the information, would he have followed through with it? Mm-hmm. I kind of want to say he does. You think he would have thrown him off? I kind of want to say he does. And that makes it even now, worse for the previous thing we just discussed. <laughs> I I I mean, I just I don't know. It's just like I mean, I mean, basically, what you are doing is you are trying to imagine: does Turk, if this guy Turk calls his bluff what what he's relying on for that information is i've done it before he knows i've done it before right so the threat 
you, you know what I mean? I, like I, like if you think through this logically, it's either he's willing to do it, or he's relying on the fact that he's done it before, and so Turk will believe him. Mm-hmm. And and so that's why I say it's like, like to do that kind of move, you have to know that he's not going to call that bluff, or or you have to be willing to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean. Matt does have the, like you said, human lie detector test. So I guess we could lean on that. But like you said. Well, maybe, you know, uh, yeah. I don't know. I was about to say something to kind of make light of it, but maybe I should. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, he had the amazing shot. I'm going to say it. He had the amazing shot with the uh, fire extinguisher. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know he's going to hit the dumpster. Yeah. Like Turk's not going to hit the concrete mm-hmm. in, in the sense like Matt's going to be accurate. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you have to say that, yeah, he would have done it. Mm -hmm. Or I feel like you do. Yeah. Once Matt gets the information he needs from Turk, we cut back to the hospital, uh, where Fisk receives a phone call from his mom and he ignores it or sends it to voicemail, I guess, um, because of his just focus on Vanessa. Um, Fisk, you know, steps outside, has a quick conversation with Wesley, letting her know mom called. Leland tries to get a word in, but Fisk is so focused on Vanessa that he just jumps right back into um, the room. From here, um, we're going to take a moment and skip a little small scene with Daredevil and kind of combine a a scene further where after Wesley and Leland's conversation about, you know, his interaction with Gal, we see Wesley return the phone call to Fisk's mother. So in the spirit of combining these two scenes, I want to say that my biggest takeaway from this is that it almost feels like there's kind of a callback to when Wesley went to go retrieve the gun from the pinball. And you and I both said that it felt like it was below his pay grade. Him deciding that he was going to see to this matter with Fisk's mother, Mm -hmm. it feels very similar in that being below his pay grade sort of feeling. And and the fact that he has to borrow a gun in a vehicle from one of his subordinates shows that, that, and I'm peeking ahead here, it shows that Wesley and somewhat Fisk's lack of trust is their downfall. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because my note here is, well, he asked, did you talk to Gal? You know, he says, I don't know. She said, he said some mystical mumbo jumbo or, or whatever he said, you know, and my note is, you know, Lily would be the last person I'd trust to talk to Gal, mm-hmm. you know, um, or to talk to anyone, honestly, in this situation. Yeah. I mean, you saw his, he's like, I don't know if it's good or bad. Really? Like you were trusting Leland to read the situation and report back. Especially because Leland is so over everything. He just wants to get back to business. Right. So, I mean, he he's not interested in figuring out who did yeah. this. Well, so, yeah. And he's, and, and he's just interested in self-preservation. You know, check, mm-hmm. you know, do you need to check me out? Or he reached out to Nobu and you clearly, we've seen another scene where he's been talking to Gal already you know mm-hmm. um so yeah like i it just it just kind of baffled me it was like what did gal say and it's like you can't tr- it's like you can't trust him anyways you know mm-hmm. so yeah and so i i found that weird about that this scene um you know and and weird not in a creator standpoint but just the standpoint of like this is like wesley slipping up which i want to say we called all the way back in episode three <laughs> <laughs> Now, the phone call I found interesting because this is where um, Wesley finds out that Karen and Ben visited, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And clearly, 
like to reemphasize the closeness between Wesley and Fisk. Mm-hmm. He well, and see that that was the thing you just mentioned about Wesley taking care of it himself. The way I read it was like Wesley knew about Fisk's mom, and clearly had visited once before. Mm-hmm. But I took it as an effort of keeping that who knew about his mom close. That's why Wesley took it upon himself to kind of keep that inner circle close of of who knew about his mom. Right. But we see he doesn't go, he doesn't attend to the mom. He immediately goes and takes out Karen. So I feel like you can, you can order a subordinate to go take out Karen without having to explain why. Right. So, but I mean, I get what you see, what you're saying about, you know, keeping that circle closed because not a lot of people know about Fisk's mother. Okay. Yeah. So I, a little, I guess a little bit of back and forth I can see on either side. Yeah. So after the hospital scenes, like we said, we, we're kind of taking these a little bit out of order because it's they're very short scenes layered in between each other. So we're combining these next two scenes. Um, you know, we do get to see that Matt eventually discovers uh, the armory where Fisk gets all his suits made. And he comes across a person by the name of Melvin Potter. Uh, they begin to fight because Melvin doesn't trust him. And after the fight carries on for a while, uh, they come to... <laughs> I was going to say they come to a truce, but Matt flat out takes him out and finally is able to talk some sense into him. And Matt learns who Porter is and is able to convince him to make him a suit. Right. Uh, now, one of the things that stood out to me about this mm-hmm. was, and, and I think on yours, your notes uh, of the scene breakdown, uh, why did I just lose it? I just scrolled. It happens. I do it all the time. <laughs> I, I, I scrolled. It, it was like right in the middle of the screen and I scrolled and now it was gone. Especially because my notes, uh, my notes, I'm reading off my iPad and sometimes it'll start to dim. So I'll tap it to like wake it up and then I'll accidentally scroll and lose my place. Yeah. And uh, okay. No, I found it. Okay. Okay. So are we keeping all that? Yeah, I think so. I think that was fine. Okay, awesome. I so, think it's your week to edit, so your uh, discretion. No, 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 keep it. Uh, no, it's my week to edit. Okay, so what I do like about this scene, in your note you had, it said the fight continues between Potter and Matt. Matt's clearly outmatched. Um, I didn't read it as outmatched. Um, I read it as still a part of that injury, right? Mm-hmm. Like like you saw him grab for his side. I mean, clearly Potter was, you know, built and formidable uh, and a fighter, uh, are, are able to handle himself mm-hmm. um, in, in that situation. But I, I was, in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, Matt's injured. I don't know if we could tra- call it a true fair fight. Well, here's my note. Like, I'm going to read it word for word because it kind of, it acknowledges that, but I think it does, it, well, here, I'll just read it. Uh, Potter is strong as hell. I'm sure Matt knew it was dumb to go out while he was still recovering. I don't think he was expecting the level of pushback he got from Potter. Because, I mean, we see a point... Right where Potter is holding him up by the neck and it doesn't look like he's yeah. breaking a sweat. So I, I do think there is an element of Matt being outmatched. And I do think he would have been significantly more competent if he wasn't injured. But I, I, I don't think he was expecting the level of strength that Potter had. Right. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask is that We've talked about how Melvin Potter is a character in the comics who goes on to be the gladiator. Um, Here within the show, we learn that Potter is a person with special needs. He's very childlike in his nature. And a question I had is, is this a choice the show made or is this comic book accurate with Melvin? 
Honestly, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I want to say it's a choice the show made, but that's kind of a gut reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say because of that, it does feel very manipulative on Daredevil's part uh, in in terms of like, he's saying, I can protect Betsy and, and making this promise um, that I don't know because of the, as you said, playing it, the character as a special needs that Potter might not fully understand, mm-hmm. you know, um, or have a different idea of what that means and looks like um, than what Daredevil's actually trying to promise here. Yeah. You know, it, 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 I, it's not something that I picked up on, but as you're bringing up the fact that like that's a big that's a big promise that Matt's trying to portray, it, it you're right, it yeah. does feel manipulative, and I don't know, it's it feels jarring because maybe it could be this is just the most that we've gotten out of Melvin, but it seems like it was a dramatic shift in the way the character was presented when it was just Fisk and Leland and Wesley to the way that he is behaving now. So it that also could be adding into that feeling of manipulation. Yeah. And that's another thing. I don't remember getting that sense of the character mm-hmm. when we first saw him with Leland and Fisk. And, and I mean, we did see where in the last time we met Potter and Leland had that line of like something like that boy ain't half right. And Fisk says it's the other half that I'm concerned. So they did plan it. We're just getting more exposed to the character in this scene than we did last time. Yes. Yeah. After that, we find Foggy at Josie's having another night of drinking, um, as he, as we stated, he had probably the night before. Um, and then Karen shows and starts to question uh, Foggy about Matt and what's going on between them. And she relays the information about she found out about Fist's mom and kind of pleading to Foggy of not giving up this fight for Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, I. I didn't have too many notes for this particular scene just because it kind of felt like a rehash of what we've already seen with Karen and and Matt. Um, But the one thing I have is what we've been tracking so far. This is the third person to push back against Karen's information and and state like it's not as important as you think it is. And by the third time, it almost starts to get the sense of like, is it not as important as Karen thinks it is? Or is everybody just given up? Well, it certainly feels like people are giving up, but Karen certainly isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I do like at the very end, kind of that moment between them, because because we've been tracking them and it feels like they're developing a, 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 a particular relationship mm-hmm. where and even if they're not going in the dating way, which we kind of thought they should and felt like, you know. She's like, do you want to talk? He's like, yeah. But then she kind of perks up and then he's like, but I can't. And she's like, well, if you tell me it's complicated. And he's like, it's personal, you know, um, which I thought was interesting for for as close as they're getting. There's still that element of, how do I want to put this? There's still that element of like as close as they're getting and as mad as he is at Matt, he's still willing to keep that secret. Right. And I like the outburst on it's personal. Because we we've we've clearly learned that Foggy is a person who does not like secrets. He's an honest person, right. Marcy scene withstanding, and so it like you said, it's that that between a rock and a hard place where he doesn't want to lie to Karen because she's someone he cares about, but he also doesn't want to reveal Matt's secret because that's someone he cares about as well. So the it's personal line, it's like he's being torn in two, and it's it's really eating at him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As that scene ends, we do see that Karen uh, 
makes a call to Ben, pleading the same from him as far as continuing on with the fight, and the scene jumps over to Ben in his office. Uh, she explains the situation with Matt and Foggy and how they are, are fighting, and she reveals that it feels like everything is falling apart. Uh, she asks for some reassurance, and he offers some wisdom. Honestly, um, it was interesting. Like, I, I feel like that interaction, you know, I guess Ben is not mad at her anymore. Um, but the bigger thing that I focused in on was he was doing mm -hmm. research, right? And you made that connection where earlier where Ben mm -hmm. mentioned Rigoletto. And he's looking into old newspaper files and zooming in on Bill Fisk's uh, political cam mm -hmm. campaign posters. Man, that's a really nice catch. I didn't, because I, like I said, I picked up on the Rigoletto name. But I just thought he was doing general research, but it makes sense. He knows who Rigoletto is, and Rigoletto is the one who lent Bill the money. So that, I like that. I'm glad you picked that up just because, well, for two reasons. The first note that I wrote down is like, I really like this continuous thread of Ben intellectually knowing that he shouldn't be involved in this case, but it's something that he just can't set aside. Like, even if he vocally tries to distance Karen away from it for her own safety, he can't heed his own advice. And something that I find important is going back to that first conversation where we learn who Rigoletto is and he's speaking to his informant, that scene takes place, I don't know if it's the exact same docs that Ben and Karen were at, but it's a very similar feel. And that scene was right. his informant realizing that he needs to move on. Like he doesn't want to be caught up in the middle of this anymore. And so mm -hmm. I like this mm -hmm. role reversal. I don't like it because it makes me scared, but... I like this <laughs> this role <laughs> reversal where we're back again at the docks. Ben knows he needs to get out. And if he wants to follow in the footsteps of the person who came before him, he should heed his own advice. And yet here we are and he can't. Right. Right. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a fantastic thread. <laughs> I'm yeah, so scared. I'm awesome. so scared. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it is. It is. It is. Um, now scenes like this do always annoy me just a little bit and you've, mm -hmm. you've used Photoshop, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> In fairness, that was probably taken on, a, uh -huh. on an actual film, that picture. Um, and that does have higher resolution. Um, and if you scanned it in at high resolution, you could. Zoom in and get it, so. He zoomed in right to it. <laughs> I was like, man, what hot key is that? I need that. <laughs> um, I do like that meta commentary about them knowing the story is about to get good, uh, right, as everything feels like it's falling apart. I think that's a nice touch. I criticize them for patting themselves on the back with a Turk. You know, I respect a smart plan line, but I think I'm going to give them a pass here. Um, specifically because it, 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 again, it pairs back to that opening cartoon where we've seen everything feel like it's falling apart for our heroes and, you know, we, we see the tide turning. Yeah. Yeah. It's all starting to come together. Um, you know, well, they only have what, two episodes yeah. after this to wrap up. We better up hope anyways. they do. <laughs> um, you know, uh, well, I mean, and, and I say that from the standpoint of we've been mm -hmm. tracking an AB cadence and then we also notice where mm -hmm. things are starting to pick up. You know, so yeah, and like you can feel that uh, kind of tension building from one episode to the next, and you're kind of letting that mm -hmm. AB cadence go. Here, we jump back to um, the hospital where we have Fisk at Vanessa's bedside, um, saying a prayer and vowing vengeance against those who put her in this situation. 
the thing that stuck out to me is that, you know, we've been tracking away. This show has drawn parallels between Matt and Fisk. And I love that they take the time to address Fisk's faith here as we're nearing the end game. Um, because like you said, he specifically mentions that he's never known true faith and it's only been an imitation of faith based on what he's seen in movies. And so again, as we're fi- finding this inverse start to reverse where Fisk is falling and Matt's rising, we're learning that Fisk doesn't have that faith to fall back on. Meanwhile, Matt is having these conversations with Father Latham and we're seeing how much faith plays into his character and how it's given him this renewed sense of guidance as this symbol. Right. One of the things I, I mean, you mentioned that like he started with this, I don't know how to pray. Um, And my note is like, he starts, I don't know how to pray. And then he goes on to start what could have been a very good, honest prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, like, like, I mean, not to get sidetracked, but I mean, the, the, the idea of prayer, right, is, is, you know, in a, in a Christian context is, should be this relationship with Christ and it's a dialogue. And so he's in a moment of, of that vulnerability and honesty. He isn't just regurgitating words anymore. He's being open to a relationship. So like, so like he actually starts what, what it would probably been his first real honest prayer you know Mm -hmm. there but he's fisk and so we so we take it and turn it to i'm still number one i'm still first and i will take vengeance upon and know you know these people and no one can stop me Mm -hmm. i mean it's the continuous he only knows how to solve things through violence and Mm -hmm. and this this is just kind of coming to me in the moment so this might not be fully fleshed out but i'm going to go for it um, you're talking about the, the relationship with prayer and how it's supposed to be your relationship with, with Christ. And I think it's interesting. It's interesting that he, he talks about how he only knew an imitation of faith and mm-hmm. we've seen, he's been stuck mm-hmm. as this child for so long when he was at his lowest, he had no one there to guide him. So I think his inability to pray is that he doesn't know how to ask for help because it's never been there for him. And the way that he's only ever been able to solve things is through violence. So for him to kind of tiptoe into that, almost getting to the prayer and then saying, no, I will be the one to strike them down. It's, it just plays well with who he we've known him as. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to say, I also love the, the wistfulness in Fisk's mm-hmm. voice whenever he said he imitated faith based on what he's seen in the movies. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it really illustrates that idea of how much is missing from Fisk's life where his parental guidance was ripped away. Right. Um, uh, there's reverence in his delivery. And I think that's just a nice touch. Right. No, it was a good, it was a good scene for, uh, what's the actor's name again? Oh, okay. Here we go. Vincent Donofrio. Nice. And I only asked just to make you say it. (laughs) 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 Okay. Oh, (laughs) but you're right. It, It was a good moment right there. Um, and, and how he delivered it and, and it, and it came across, um, really well. Um, Mm -hmm. okay. So I just noticed a mistake we made. Uh Um, and so what, at this point, um, Karen wakes up and what I, I believe forgot to set up a couple of scenes ago is at the end of that scene with Karen and Ben, um, Karen gets off the phone and walks up to her apartment door and uh, is taken from behind. Um, now, in fairness, 
this part of the of the episode starts jumping around a lot with really short snippets, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think both of us mentioned more about Ben than Karen in that scene. But at this, this is the point where Karen wakes up gasping for air um, as she's alone in this warehouse. And then Wesley is revealed uh, to be her captor. So I think the, the, the one of the biggest notes that I took away here is Wesley has a line specifically where he says, I'm not here because I want to be. I'm here because I'm needed. And I right. think we finally got our answer about why Wesley looked so upset in that meeting with Gal. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. He, he called attention to that feeling of being needed. And we see how much that means to him. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really good catch. And yeah, and I, I like I like that they paired this with that re- revelation of how much disdain he has for the city and the people he views beneath them. Um, it, it's it almost is conjuring this feeling of a completely untethered Wesley. And we've picked up on hints and his weird slip ups throughout the season. And I think it's finally caught up to him. OK, you what? A couple of things on for me on this on this scene. One, you know, he mentions that, again, we've been tracking this, his love of Fisk, um, where he's like, Fisk loves this city. Um, I'm needed here. I don't love this city. Mm-hmm. You know, and as you mentioned, how he just looks down on the people. Now, outside of that, me watching it, my note is I feel like I'm watching Agent Smith from The Matrix. Hmm. The cadence, the language, all everything the way he's talking, it's like when he's talking about Neo and the mate talking, not talking about Neo, when he's talking to Neo um, in the first movie when he's captured, you know, when he takes out his earpiece and he's talking about how humanity is like parasites and how he doesn't like it in the Matrix. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it just was really reminiscent of Agent Smith in that that moment in the first movie and some other scenes in the other two. Hmm which I haven't seen as many times as the first one, so I couldn't refer to him as, as well. So You know what I was thinking? I've seen The Matrix, but I realized uh, earlier this year, I was nine when I watched it, and I haven't watched it since. <laughs> I need to rewatch it. Oh, yeah. It's Netflix? It might be. I think it is. It, it was recently. And I've heard it. It, it still holds up really well. So I, I, I need... Yeah, I, I would say the first one holds mm-hmm. up. Yeah, so I need to go back and watch that. You know, it's interesting that you make that comparison to Agent Smith um, because one of the notes that I took is that we've seen Wesley wax poetically before, but, you know, in a similar way to Agent Smith. But there's something about the way he does it this time that feels too verbose. You know, talking about how, like, you made a choice, a choice that put you here at this moment tonight. And it it just kept, like, it was weird (laughs) and it felt clunky. Agent Smith. (laughs) <laughs> and it felt clunky, especially, I just wish it would have had like another pass. Right. Revealing a little bit, especially knowing that this is our boy's final scene. Yeah. Well, okay. There's, there's a quick scene with Fisk at, at the hospital that's so quick and it, and it interacts with what's going on here. So we'll address that in just a moment. Um, and, and continue on with this, uh, Wesley Karen interaction. Mm-hmm. And and so the way that I can tie, can tie those two scenes together is one of the things we haven't really noted yet is that in this first part with Wesley and Karen, Wesley puts a gun on the table to kind of like threaten her. And he doesn't hold it. He just lays it there on the table. And one of the things I like is that there's a subtle look on Karen's part that I love. Whenever, whenever she deduces that Wesley hasn't told Fisk that she and Ben visited his mother her eyes look mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. at the gun 
And I think we start right. to see the moment she formulates her plan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she looks for that opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and we've we've praised this show from start to finish. You know, I'll finish in a couple of weeks. But so far, I mean, I don't think they're going to fall off in these last two episodes of having all those little facial expressions mm-hmm. and show in like these subtle facial expressions, but doing a good job of showing us them. So we get that information mm-hmm. out of the scene. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that exactly happens here. Um, and then even her reaction of like when he offers her the job and she kind of giggles, laughs a little bit, um, you know, which kind of shows in some ways she's still scared, but to me it kind of shows that she's not as scared as uh, Wesley wants her to be. Oh yeah. I mean, she, cause she's trying to throw some punches too. Specifically, uh, as I was saying, it, she, she calls out the verbose nature of the script because Wesley yeah. is going on again and she goes, is that supposed to be English? And he gets frustrated and kind of states it in a, in plain terms. And in plain terms. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, and at this point, like, She's had enough and she's like, hey, just kill me already. Um, and I feel like Wesley did a really good job. The actor here did a really good job of, you know, kind of having that intimidation of like, no, 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 we're not going to kill you. We're going to kill Ben, you know, and because at this point, this is when she knows how bad she messed up because now Ben, they have his name and he's in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they mentioned my name, Foggy, Matt everyone you ever loved and stuff. And and I think you see that back and forth real quick where she has that look at the gun. She kind of loses a little bit of that fear or gets a little bit of confidence. But then in these lines with Wesley, like that fear starts creeping back in. Mm-hmm. So eventually it gets to the point where Wesley, as he's kind of like intimidating her, Wesley receives a phone call and that catches him off guard enough for her to get the gun and, and eventually kill Wesley. And and in this exchange, I think the thing I like is that both Karen and Wesley try to outbluff the other. But mm-hmm. I like it a little less when you realize that Wesley calls out the flaw of a character as smart as him putting the gun on the table within reach of Karen. Yeah. And so yeah. like I go back and forth because we know Wesley is a capable force and making a mistake like this is beneath him, but it's not like it hasn't been set up all season. It just kind of feels like unceremonious for him to go out like this. It does. Uh, I mean, hubris takes him down, and that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I also find it interesting, that scene I just mentioned, that phone call that distracts him from Fisk, you know, basically is Fisk looking for Wesley mm-hmm. and calling multiple, you know, and, and calling multiple times, because after Karen shoots Wesley, you know, uh, Fisk tries again. And I thought it was interesting that Wesley's choice to handle it himself and not let Fisk know, you know, is what really kind of what did him in, mm-hmm. you know, um, that I'll take care of it myself, you know, is what allowed Karen to have that moment of like, oh, you didn't tell anybody yet, you know, and kind of, you know, so so the slip up was more than just this moment. Mm-hmm. I will say this, putting on my let's fix the script hat, if this was the route they were going to go all along. I, I we we recognize that they have taken time to set up the ways Wesley has slipped up, but I wish they would have done a little more service of ways that being Fisk's right hand man was leading to his demise, or somehow uh-huh. demonstrate the imbalance of Wesley being at his every beck and call at the sacrifice of his own well being. I think right. I think it just would have made that 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 
that point of Fisk being the one who called hit just a little bit harder. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I don't know how you would have done it. I think that is something you could have laid that seed and pulled that thread through a, little, a lot sooner. Because I, I think it, it if you would have done that, it would have been more impactful instead of this being like, oh, that's just bad luck. And then it it, it, it ends right. with the, the scene just being focused on Fisk trying to make a call that's not being answered. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And the only reason why I wanted to reemphasize, yes, I think it's a good point, is my last note was more on Karen. Mm -hmm. And I just wrote, you know, she does a poor job of cleaning the fingerprints. <laughs> um, and I know, I know she was in a hurry to get out, but like, no. like You know, I made the joke about fighting crime, but this is the second time have you picked up on how to clean up a, a crime scene. <laughs> because <laughs> i've missed him both times with when it was blake and hoffman in the police precinct and then this scene <laughs> so yeah i mean that that brings us to the end of the episode um overall i i like this episode because it conjures that feeling of a, a calm before the storm uh you know we've seen our protagonist hit their lowest point and watch our antagonist continually rise. And so we're finally starting to see that momentum shift. And it was clever of the opener to convey that with the cartoon in the beginning. Yeah, that was that was very clever. I think what I liked about this episode um, is they they were is in the planning how this is what we are kind of identifying right now as this belly of the beast for Fisk's character arc. Mm -hmm. And this is also where the character of Daredevil in Matt's mind, beyond just Man in the Mask, and kind of is born, mm -hmm. right? And so, and so you have um, this true, not just turning of the. We keep saying these turning of the tides, but actual like um, choices that are made that push the characters in a particular direction mm -hmm. um, that there's no turning back from. Yeah. Okay, and it's only exemplified by the fact we only got two more episodes left to go. Mm -hmm. Yep. But yeah, that is going to do it for our discussion of episode 11, The Path of the Righteous. But of course, you know, we can't end without talking about our question of the week. So Trey, this question is, I find interesting because um, this, I think might be our first MCU, maybe world building question. Mm-hmm. Do you think or feel like they're going to continue to have the Sokovia Accords impact Phase 4, or are they going to kind of let it fade into the background, make that part of the Infinity Saga, and not carry that through? I think they—it almost feels like cheating to say, I know they're going to carry on with it, because the first movie of Phase 4 is going to be Black Widow, which we already know is takes place between Civil War and Infinity War. Okay, and true. Her being on the run is because of the Sokovia Accords. But if we set that aside and say, okay, that that doesn't, not that it doesn't count, but because it's a prequel, it, it doesn't answer the important question of like, is this something they're still going to continue on in the present, which is where we are with, say, Far From Home, even though that's technically phase three. Right. Well, I mean, you mm -hmm. have the third Spider-Man movie, right? Like that's going to be present. Um, a lot of other things are going to be present as well. Mm -hmm. So. So I hope it becomes something that they do carry on because we do have Falcon and the Winter Soldier and everything we know about that is that they're, and I'm being careful here because I don't, I know there are people that try to remain as pure as they can and watch things with no trailers or information. So if you're worried about spoilers, maybe skip ahead a little bit, but 
we already know that there's this element of Sam having to prove himself as Captain America. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. I can't imagine that that won't tie in to the Sokovia Accords, given how much Steve, like, was against the Accords. And then even if you jump in, like you were saying to that Spider-Man 3, the way Far From Home ended, Peter gets outed and he is now wanted for the death of of Mysterio. Mm-hmm. And they've never addressed the fact that even within Civil War, where... Iron Man was clearly wrong. Iron Man had to use an unsigned superhero to help swing the tide of the battle. So it just right. feels natural that that would come back into Peter's storyline. Yeah. And I I kind of, I'm with you. I feel like, well, let me, let me step that back. I'm with you in the sense that I feel like they should pull that thread through mm-hmm. because it was such a big part of Captain America 3 and we saw traces of it at the beginning of Endgame. Um, we saw its impact in Ant-Man and the Wasp, right? Mm-hmm. And and if they made such a big deal about it, like coming from the UN and those types of things, um, I don't. I, I would hope they don't just let it fade out or just find some way to write it out. Yeah, you know, I want to see them kind of pull that thread through and deal with the consequences of the stories they made. Mm-hmm. Especially because that would undercut the severity of our heroes splitting in Civil War if that doesn't continue to be a a huge thing. Right. Because you can make the argument if it wasn't for them splitting, Infinity War ends with them beating Thanos. But because of the consequences of Civil War, they lost. If that's not something that continuously gets um, pulled through, then it makes their fight feel frivolous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think they said they use that to set up them being divided to move into, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Um, but, yeah, I'm with you. Like, that's, I don't think they can let that go. I hope they don't. I don't think they will. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right, that is going to do it for this episode. If you'd like to chime in with your thoughts for Season 1, Episode 11 of Daredevil, or if you'd like to answer the question whether or not you think they will continue the Sokovia Accords thread, you can always reach us at MCU Need to Know on Twitter or at MCU Need to Know on Instagram. Or if you'd like to write an email, you can email us at MCU Need to Know at gmail.com. While you're doing that and online, uh, please take a moment to give us a rating, leave a review. Our, your feedback is supremely helpful uh, for us. And to keep the conversation going, please you know share with a friend, bring more bring more to this discussion we'd also like to give a special thanks to nick sandy for the use of our theme song which is his rendition of the avengers theme if you want to see more of his work you can visit his soundcloud which is linked in the description so i for whatever reason i forgot to say goodbye (laughs) 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 oh man but uh yeah that's gonna do it for this episode uh until next week thank you so much for doing this dude thank you trey see you all next week and by the third time it almost starts to get this sense of like is it not as important as karen thinks it is or is everybody just giving up yeah and kevin uh, kevin Damn. <laughs> <laughs> who's kevin <laughs> oh my god uh. oh my gosh taking we're not taking a week off again. No, I'm going to get that um, USB mic. I'm going to be prepared for when I go on the road. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't know when I...
started a podcast. I was giving up my holiday. <laughs> hey, I just streamed for four years. Get used to it. <laughs> In tag. Uh, <laughs> I clearly got some vitriol built up from that. <laughs> Okay. okay.